The Association of Mature American Citizens is an organization dedicated to America's seniors, but is vital for conservatives of all ages. AMAC stands out by not only advocating for senior issues, but also by pushing for conservative values that affect us all. By joining, you're not just supporting our senior citizens, you're part of a movement defending our freedoms and securing our nation's future. Plus, membership brings you exclusive benefits like discounts on travel, dining, entertainment, and special insurance rates. Regardless of your age, if you're driven to preserve freedom, AMAC welcomes you. This is about uniting youthful vigor with the wisdom of experience in our quest for conservative principles. Sign up now at AMAC, A-M-A-C dot U-S slash Victor. And for a limited time, get a free gift membership for someone who shares your love for our great nation. Don't miss out on this chance to make a difference with AMAC. Join today at AMAC.US slash Victor and extend the invitation to a friend or family member for free. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host, the star and namesake. Victor Davis Hanson is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. This podcast is one of two episodes we're doing while Victor is uh, taking a little vacation. So, But we don't want to leave our many listeners, 50,000, 60,000, 70,000. How many downloads we're getting, Victor? This show is just growing significantly thanks to all who listen but we don't want to leave you victorless for the week so victorless. here we are <laughs> can you imagine a week without victor victorless is called defeated <laughs> people there would be terrible withdrawal anyway victor we're going to we'll talk about at least two things maybe three and the first thing i think would be interesting to talk about is not about today's headlines these podcasts but about recent event and that is the Titanic site, when the and the the Titan submersible that was a you know great news and and it blew up under water pressure back near Father's Day. But I think this leads to some thoughts that we'd like to get from Victor on burial sites or the or the wreckage of ships and how do we respect the dead and places where people died, etc. Victor was a was on the Battlefield Monument Commission. I think he has a, a special perspective to lend on that. And we'll get Victor's thoughts on that and more right after these important messages. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor, um, while this five, six-day drama was playing out across America. Of course, any number of commentators started commentating on um, they, they shouldn't even be going down whether or not the Titan submersible was in uh, uh, you know uh, engineering shape to, to perform this these kind of things over long term. The fact that people are going to the Titanic as it is as a tourist site violates certain uh, um, sacred uh, codes, which have are unwritten. I, I could see a difference between a 
a battleship. Okay. Carrier lost it during war, and you know this is where warriors now rest. Though technically, I don't think there's even remains in many of these sites. So, Victor, we have we have this kind of um, kvetching about what's permissible or not um, with underwater graves. Do you have thoughts? And again, I want to repeat, you were a member of the United States Battlefield Monuments Commission. I think you have a a, a special place in your heart, and maybe you've, you've thought about these things a little more than most, about how the dead uh, are to be treated and respected. Yeah, there's a wonderful book written on the American Battlefield Monuments Commission by Tom Connor. He's a professor of emeritus of military history. Wonderful guy at uh, Hillsdale College, very learned, scholarly, and he wrote the definitive book. And it's really a fascinating story. I was on the commission until bumped off when Obama came in, as all of us were, even though we weren't political. But the care and the regimentation as far as the type of marble, the type of vault, the type of grass, it's just stunning. And then the generational loyalty of people in Belgium and France, to take two examples in Italy, father, son, grandson, that work for us and to maintain these battlefields. About half of the soldiers that were killed overseas since World War One have been buried in these types of cemeteries. You don't really associate um, shipwrecks with cemeteries, but they all are because by definition, Usually people go down with a ship, at least some of them do. And I know when they, you talk about battleships, but the, when the U.S. Arizona blew up, tragically, if you go to Pearl Harbor, you can see, you know, that monument where you can see where through the water where the, the, the wreck is. And they were not able to get everybody out, as I recall. And this came up, I think, in a discussion once at the Battlefield Commission meeting. And I think there's at least eight or nine hundred uh, American servicemen that were not recovered that rest there. And I surely do, would not think that anybody would be allowed and they're not allowed to go down there and prowl around that, that site. So I, I agree with you. I, I think there's something macabre about that. As far as the Titan and Mr. Stockton Rush, the Princeton graduate, um, you know, new age, I guess he was breaking the the barriers of uh, deep sea underwater discovery. I, there were some things I never understood about it. I mean, so you're going to use a carbon fiber shell, which is going to be what, safer? But how much? How many dollars would you save over a time-tried uh, technology of reinforced steel and various layers that have a proven efficacy at that level? Why would you try to do something with people's lives that are not, you know, they're not they didn't sign up to die. They may have been mistaken by wanting to go to the Titanic graveyard, but you wouldn't really allow passengers to take that risk, it seems to me, if you were responsible. And it's not a savings. You can think of all sorts of savings. And I remember before this incident took place at the Titanic, when the Titan blew up, before that, he was sort of bragging. You remember, Jack? He had a uh, joystick he bought on Amazon or something, right? Nineteen and the idea was something like that. Yeah, yeah it was. We were going to cut here and cut here, and we're not going to get quote unquote old white guys with military experience, um, mm -hmm. submariners, and it was almost as if 
this guy was out of control. I mean, there were, there were, he was taking risks with other people's lives that were unacceptable. And I, I don't know. I think there's something about our culture that we, we deprecate nature or the physical natural realities. And the fact is we're not designed to go down 10, 12,000 feet below the surface. And this is a, it's not just a Titanic in the movies. It's a graveyard of people who died tragically and they're down there. Their remains are. And the idea that you, and they're not archeological specimens, you know, that you're excavating at Corinth in Greece and you run across a, a shin bone that's, you know, 2,500 years old. This is fairly recent in the ninth, in the 20th century. So, I don't understand the McCarp fascination with going down there. I don't understand the risk that he took. I do understand and deplore the implementation of a woke ideology, if that's what we were to call it, that substituted expertise and merit for considerations other than, than talent, which by de definition and his that post-mortem quote that he that surfaced that his primary not primary but at least a chief overriding concern was a person's sex and gender and age rather than their proven knowledge of underwater realities you know victor the the smartest people in the world when it comes to submersibles are are older white guys who live in connecticut right yeah, general well, they, boat yeah and the people who have been go down there months and months at a time and they understand that people who build them the people who operate them the people who know the protocol and the protocol is what it's been inured over 80 years basically since before world war one 1910 1915 there right. were certain rules and protocols that people followed and they're timeless i mean they change a little bit with technology but not the essentials and it seems to me that one of the protocols is if you're going to go down that deep, then you want a time-tried technology. And he had problems with an earlier, I think he'd only had three prior uh, voyages. And, the, and one of them had a problem with navigation. It was lost for several hours, incommunicado, et cetera. So uh, beware of people. I don't know. I, I just think that whether you go to Princeton or whether you announce yourself as a cutting-age scientist or you're going to make breakthroughs in gender and race when you hire. This is all nothing. It's just nothing. What the reality is, you're taking people down in a cell where it doesn't belong, and it's very dangerous, and it also has spiritual and moral complications. Yeah. I, I, I need to uh, – I'm not disagreeing with you, but, but just for general information, in uh, when the Titanic was found – in the mid '80s, located, and the, the, the people who live for the sea and sailing, etc. One of them was my former boss, William F. Buckley Jr., the founder of National Review and great sailor. And uh, he did go. To, he was one of the first people uh, to to go to the site. Of, um, a French company uh, had some, you know world-class submersible went down. I would recommend if anyone's interested in what it's like to go down in a submersible to those depths and what one can see through a 
foot thick uh, plexiglass uh, window, uh, you, you should go to the Hillsdale uh, College website and it, it has the archives of everything Bill Buckley ever wrote. And in 1987, he wrote a significant essay for the for uh, the New York Times magazine on on going down to the Titanic. So uh, I, I can see myself, Victor, people, um, uh, you know, checking, looking, finding the remains and marking the remains. But uh, doing more than that is uh, it's a little uh, troubling. So um, thanks for your thoughts on that, Victor. We're going to talk next or get your views on the um, phenomenon of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. We've talked about him a little bit on some previous podcasts, but on this particular podcast, maybe give him a little more of your attention and we will get to your thoughts on that, Victor, right after these important messages. Back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show, I would like to encourage our listeners to visit Victor's website, The Blade of Perseus. Its web address is victorhanson.com. And that's Hanson, S-O-N. Sometimes, Victor, I know I give it that little E sound. I apologize. It's my Bronx accent. But all of Victor's writings can be found there. His pieces for American Greatness, his syndicated columns, links to his other appearances, uh, the archives for these podcasts and his ultra articles. His, those are exclusive pieces that Victor writes two or three times a week for the Blade of Perseus. To be able to read them, you need to be a subscriber. Five bucks gets you in the door. Uh, stick your toe in the water. $50 for the full year. Uh, I would calculate that there's the equivalent of two books of uh, Victor's uh, writings that you will you will um, enjoy and truly enjoy if you subscribe to the Blade of Perseus. So do pl please do consider that. So, Victor, I just I got today my um, weekly copy of the I call it the Epoch Times, but everyone else calls it the Epoch Times. And on the front page is a piece. Uh, RFK Jr.'s broad appeal is an, an election anomaly. Let me just read the, the beginning here, Victor. Some Democrats say that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is a fringe candidate who, spends who sp spreads conspiracy theories. Others believe that a surge of early support for the 2024 presidential campaign signals discontent with President Joe Biden's um, uh, job performance and bodes poorly for the incumbent's re-election. In the early stages of his campaign, Kennedy generated support from independents as well as conservative and moderate Republicans, leading to speculation that he could run as a Republican or an independent. Kennedy squashed that idea, telling the Epoch Times definitively, I am a Democrat, which makes him an anomaly in today's divisive political climate, because most pundits agree that he is the candidate who appeals to the widest spectrum of voters. But Victor, a couple of weeks ago, um, he there was a, a, a little more prominence well, to Kennedy. He, he appeared on a, um, uh, he had a very long conversation with uh, uh, Jordan Peterson that was a, a broadcast, um, similar with Joe Rogan. There's so significant uh, eyeballs and, and ears uh, catching what he had to say. He is the enemy of my enemy, 
who is my friend, that enemy being Anthony Fauci, he he just he says things that do have strong appeal to uh, people across the spectrum. On the other hand, Victor, he's also got a record of being a it's a technical term, a, a creep. Megan McCain wrote a uh, wrote a column for the Daily Mail in the face of these all this uh, attention Kennedy was getting. Again, it's about three four weeks ago, saying, "Hey, hey, let's remember what this guy did. Remember what this his second wife, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. So, anyway, Victor, there's something about him though. He resonates with with. Um, conservatives. He resonates with liberals. He's uh, censored. He's in part of that club, right? Who's been censored? And that crosses a lot of uh, a lot of thresholds. So Robert F. Kennedy Jr. announced candidate for president. Victor, what are your broader thoughts about this man? Well, he's getting resonance because of the COVID crisis. Let's face it. Uh, he had a theory that vaccinations, either the packing or the ingredients or the preservatives resulted in autism, whether autism itself was primarily caused by vaccination. It was a little bit murky, but most in the science, and I, I'm not, I'm not going to weigh in on the validity of that assertion of his, but most in the scientific community doubted that. And then they went the next step and he became a pariah from liberal circles of which he was Beloved as a son of the slain Robert F. Kennedy, uh, who had that miraculous 1968 brief but briefly successful uh, challenge to Hubert Humphrey. And uh, he got a lot of attention with COVID because he made the argument that the vaccinations were not only not going to be protective of you from being infected or you protect others from you infecting them, contrary to what Anthony Fauci had said, but that the spike protein, we were essentially not, we were not making a vaccine in the traditional sense of a weakened or a partially destroyed virus that wouldn't have any ability to infect us, but would have an ability to excite the immune system. But we were flooding our system with much more millions of these spike proteins, just a fragment of the virus. And that this caused hyperimmune responses in the, the lungs, the brain, and it was dangerous. And he said that the, the knowledge was suppressed. And he was a, an absolute, if we had this conversation two years ago, he was persona non grata in academic punditry, especially among the left. And then a lot of what he said, wh whether it proved to be true, his anxiety, his concern was legitimate. Because now we're learning, trickling out that the vaccines did have consequences that we weren't told about. They were rushed into production. They were not going to give you 96%. You know, I'm speaking of somebody who got two Modernas and got COVID three times and long COVID. So I can, I can tell you it's a sensitive topic with me. But that kind of revived him, Jack. And before, and then... Then the Democratic Party went hard, hard left. It had been from Obama. And he, that stance on a vaccination was a libertarian stance, and he developed that vein. And so then he began to question certain tenets of this new progressive Jacobin intolerance, such as suppression of free speech or trying to label as disinformation or misinformation legitimate debate. Uh, 
and that drew the attention of conservatives that on the, on the issues of vaccine and on free speech, they found a kindred soul. So he, he went on Fox News. He went on particularly Tucker Carlson, gave him a lot of free time. And right. presto, he was transmogrified into Jack Kennedy of 1960. And everybody said, he's, an, he's the old Kennedy Democrat. And to your point, if you look on at his uh, stance on things like the border, crime, uh, border, he's a little bit, he's, tra he's transcended or evolved. But on most of the issues, he's not that different than Elizabeth Warren, Biden, the rest of the left. But on two key issues that attract conservatives, on free speech, fr freedom of will, vaccinations, quarantine, he's with them. And I think that makes him an attractive candidate, especially the more left-wing and more uh, non-compos mentes or, or cognitively challenged Joe Biden. So, Second Amendment he, also, I think. Yes, victories. Second Amendment. He's a libertarian. And yeah. uh, that said, I think what's going to happen is as he becomes more prominent, the media nexus machine is going to go after him and we know what they do to people they destroy them and they're going to go after his first annulment where he had i think he had two children with one wife and had an affair with another woman and then he had four more and then he i guess the word is dumped her in a very supposedly cruel fashion he married a third time and then she hung herself and there were a lot of braggadocio about extramarital, all that stuff that you referenced with Meghan McCain. And that's going to come out and they're going to use that against him because they cannot stand him. They, you know, that's something the left will not tolerate any questions about Dr. Fauci or the lockdowns or quote. It's just, you can't, it's a non-starter with them. And they will turn on him because he, he threatens what the narrative is. And we know what the narrative is. The narrative is now, you saw it with Marine Dowd, uh, Jack crashing Joe Biden, rightfully so, for disowning right. his illegitimate grandson. I guess I would, that's the proper word. And then we see other things. I think there was an article about old Yeller today that Joe Biden, I think it was kind of aimed at helping him, but it came off like he was yelling, get off my grass type of crotchety, mean sort of person. My only response to that was he was always mean. He was always cool. He always screamed at people. But what I'm getting at is the media now has started a new narrative. And the new narrative is Joe Biden, if he's nominated, he could very well get Donald Trump elected or Ron DeSantis, and that's intolerable. And he's embarrassing us, and we've got to get rid of him. But we can't get rid of him with Kamala Harris there. So what we want to do is... We want to ease him out so that he we write stories, not enough to say that he's dangerous. I mean, Fareed Zakaria just had one of the most intellectually dishonest things I've ever seen in my life. What did he say? I didn't he see had it. an interview with Joe Biden and he sorts, you have one of the most successful presidencies in history and you, you are so successful. How do you do it? This is a guy who plagiarized. Remember in 2012 when he was kicked off his perches? Right. Intellectual dishonesty and didn't really come man up to it until he was caught. And so, so there is a, another plagiarizer. Yes. So they, <laughs> yes, yes. Two plagiarizers. So they don't 
They don't want to get rid of him now because they do not want Kamala Harris to be president now. But they are setting the stage for these leaks and this innuendo, all the things that are absolutely true. But if you or I said it or any of our people listening, they would scream and yell and say that you're a smear or a libel or all that. So they're going to try to ease him into a position that he does not run. Then that opens up new parameters, i.e. a Gavin Newsom or somebody like him can run. And then they can legitimately say, well, Kamala, you can run too, knowing that she doesn't have a chance and she won't just step into the presidency because he can't finish his term. So they're trying to thread the needle, preparing all of us for the idea that this wonderful statesman with this wonderful record, it's time that after saving the republic for Trump from Trump, he's going to gradually fade off and right off in the sunset. And then we're going to have a new Kennedy type, not the Kennedy, but a young type of Newsom or somebody like him. That's the narrative. And then Robert Kennedy to get back and finish up. He's a threat to all that. He's a wild card because they know what happened with LBJ and 68. And they know that people can come out of nowhere. Ross Perot, 20% of the vote destroyed the Bush reelection effort. And it's a wild card once you open things up. So they do not want this guy anywhere near the Democratic primary. And, um, so we'll see. Well, I, I think he's playing the role of disruptor now and, and probably will continue. What is also maybe interesting, Victor, is that, uh, you know, you can't discount the media attacks. But if you're being attacked on MSNBC, you know, how many people are actually seeing it? Yeah, it filters into a, a broader narrative, no question. But some of these other, you know, we were talking to Tucker Carlson on um, well, whatever Tucker has coming up, what, what, when Tucker talks to someone, what is he getting now? Like 40 million views on his or more? Uh, Joe Rogan, he, the, 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 this is a, there are uh, Jordan Peterson's. Yeah, I, I don't audience. think the, these yeah, are I end runs you around. You make a really uh, good point because the left feels that they have the New York Times, they have the Washington Post, they have NPR, they have PBS, they have ABC, they have CBS. They have NBC, they have MSNBC, they have CNN, and they control the narrative. They do in a large part, but there's a revolution going on. It transcends Facebook. There's a new Twitter out there, but somebody like Joe Rogan or Jordan Peterson or Megyn Kelly, you put that aggregate audience on Tucker, and it's huge, and they're not utilizing that, and they're not going to be utilized to go on there. And so Robert Kennedy is really in a unique position. He's thinking, hmm, I can balance all of the negative orthodox left-wing attacks on me by going to conservative or libertarian media, and they have the same reach as, as the left does. So in a weird way, it, it kind of funnels into my advantage. The more they attack me from the left, the more people on the right won't look at my record but they'll just say, well, I don't really know who he is. I don't follow him. I don't know about all the shenanigans he was involved in, left-wing stuff. That All I know is they hate him. And that's good enough for me, as you said, Jack. Enemy and my enemy is my friend. So right. he, he's really a droid. He's channeling all of that institutional bias and unwarranted prejudice against him from the left wing, who supposedly loves liberals and the Kennedys in particular, to make him palatable to conservatives. And as long as he sticks on those issues, 
as long as he sticks on vaccinations and free speech and social media is dangerous and left-wing corporations are trying to monopolize sectors of the economy, maybe even Second Amendment, First Amendment, he's okay. But once he gets off that reservation, I think people will be shocked about his personal and his yeah. his public uh, yeah. persona uh, agendas. I, I have nothing against him. I I, I yeah. wish him well, but uh, I wouldn't vote for him. Is that that's my point? Right. Well, there's another uh, Democrat who um, caused a little flutter in the hearts of conservatives, and and now has disappointed them and the children of Pennsylvania. And that's the governor of Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro, who's sold out on education reform and. We will get your thoughts on that, Victor, for this uh, final question as we, uh, we come back from this final important message. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor, um, kind of off the radar for a lot of people, it was a um, hope that, that there was going to be some Election reform, excuse me, not uh, election, education reform in Pennsylvania. Now, the state politically, Josh Shapiro, a young uh, Democrat, second term, uh, but he ran on promoting education reform. He's got a secretary of education who's in favor of it. A couple of Democrats in the state Senate, which is controlled by the Republicans, who are promoting it. But there's a one vote. I think it's a, essentially like a 5149 breakdown in the, in the Pennsylvania House, which is controlled by the Democrats. And education reform, they call the Lifeline Scholarships, um, passed, were part of the budget. And Shapiro went on national television saying, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to support them. So there was this budget fight between the House and the Senate, and he said no, he was going to support it. And then the budget deadline was July, excuse me, June thirtieth. It passed, and then as um, I think it was the day before July third, he announced, um, "You know what? I have the line item veto, and if this budget passes, and it will pass, I'm going to line item veto the hundred million dollars de uh, dedicated to education reform for the well, I mean, elementary school kids in in Pennsylvania. So it's, a, so it's like a, a everybody real got, yeah, everybody minus, to, uh, Charlie Brown the football situation here. Everybody has to remember what the elite left really cares about in education, particularly as it affects minorities. They swim in the same water as elite minorities, you know, the Jory Reeds of the world or the Don Lamonts or the Oprahs. And in their way of thinking, they they are so magnanimous because they allow people to get into Harvard or Yale or Stanford or Princeton who that otherwise do not achieve. And this is a matter of data, by the way, if anybody said, how dare you say this, Victor? It's a matter of proven data that they do not have the same GPA and SAT scores as other groups. Okay. And so they always look at the, the elite top end, but what they do not want to get into is the school system in Baltimore or the school system in Los Angeles or the school system in Chicago, where literally in schools of two and 3,000 people, not a single student is reading at grade level. 
um, much less comp- computing at grade level. And we know why, because there's no incentives, there's no rewards, there's no punishment as far as the teachers. They're well well paid for all the white, the, gr- the groaning, they are well paid. And I, I have been a teacher for 30 years, and you do not work 12 months. I mean, I wrote all summer long, and during vacation, I corrected pay. I get that. But you were getting paid for nine to 10 months, and most people don't have that. And and that they don't have that leisure. So it's not drudgery. And the point is, the teachers unions forbid any discussion of reform. And we know what would be the solution. You would have competition. You would have a promotion of homeschooling. You would have a promotion of charter schools. You would give vouchers for private academies. And in that conundrum, students would self-select. And those who didn't offer competitive education would go out of business. And that's just the way it is. And so what would be, why would a liberal oppose that? And the answer is a teacher's union. And they, he's made a concentrated, concerned calculus that on the one side, he would like to help minority kids and underprivileged whites and everybody that are trapped in terrible schools that are institutionalized mediocrity. or he takes on the teachers union and he doesn't get any money from them, but he gets a lot of abuse and it's a no brainer. He's a politician. And that's just a commentary about how the, the, the left looks at questions of parity and equity. They always look at the back end, the top end. They never look at K through 12. In other words, if you had an honest concern, humanitarian government, and you were worried about the lack of parity between African-Americans and non-African-Americans, whether they define as whites or Asians, or then you would say, we're going to go in there to the inner city and we're going to offer competitive education. And we're going to talk tough. We're going to have mandatory Latin. We're going to have uniform. We're going to train these kids so that they compete with people at Andover or Sacred Heart or wherever they are. And we're going to show you can do. I'm talking from experience because in 1984, I was a I was farming, and you know I went up to a Cal State campus nearby, and I talked myself into a part time Latin. They had no Greek, they had no classics program, and with the help of Bruce Thornton and a couple of other scholars, we built a classics department that served primarily minority students. And it was not, oh, you're Latino or you're an illegal alien or your dad came from Cambodia and your mom, it's not your third language. English is your third language. None of that. It is, we are going to assume that you want to be competitive with people who have greater advantages than you do. If you want to do that, I'm not going to force you to do that. We offer a pathway. And I will stay till nine o'clock at night and tutor you if that's what it needs. And we're going to make you more competitive. We're going to have you, when you give a report in class, you're going to have no notes. When you start to talk in English, you're going to have perfect diction. We're going to correct your grammar. We're going to correct every mistake on your essays. But we're going to ensure that you're better trained than people with a lot. And it worked. Over 21 years, I said, we at the top end, we sent 50 people to Ivy League caliber law schools, medical schools. PhD programs, and we sent a whole legion of people to te- teaching, government service, and but it was very hard because there were absolutely no allies on your side. 
whether it was the Chuck Connell Studies Department or the Black Studies Department or the faculty unions, you name it. There was nobody on your side and nobody wants to fight that. And I lasted 21 years and I was totally burned out. And uh, do you have any uh, allegiance from any of all these hundreds of uh, I see them all the time, Jack, when I'm in the San Joaquin Valley, which most of the time. Yeah. Because the way the CSU system works, you had to average 100 students in four courses. What's called FTE, okay, full-time equivalent enrollment. And and so a faculty member had to average that. So if I was offering Latin with 30 students, that was okay. If I offered uh, history, humanities of the Western world with 60 students, I was okay. Now I'm up to 90. So then I could offer introductory Attic Greek with 15 students, and then I could offer uh, Xenophon, second year, third year Greek combined with six students, and then I could teach an overload, which I wasn't paid for, a fifth class, and I did that for six years, five classes, five different preps, and I could teach Cicero or Livy or something. And out of that package then, uh, you were able to have a sustainable program. And then my point is this, is that I would have over 100, twice, two semesters. So 221 years, you know, you're getting up to four or 5,000 faces that you had in class and you bump into them in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. I do all the time. I had a, a group of maybe 40 students that went on in classics, either getting a master's degree in prep schools or PhDs. There must be 15 or 20 of them. The fact the chairman of uh, the classics program right now at Cal State is one of the, uh, absolutely one of the most brilliant students I've ever had, Christy Easton and her husband, Curtis. And he went to Yale and she went to Brown from Fresno State. And I've never had, I, I don't think I've ever had a student of that caliber. She was absolutely phenomenal. I had other students almost as good or maybe in different areas as good. So I had some students that, that you know, I had a guy named Sal Diaz that was just brilliant. And uh, I had, they were just phenomenal students. And some of them I'm very close to. Some of them, uh, maybe it's my fault, Jack, because I I started to become maybe 15 years ago writing more op-eds and more political 20 years ago. And uh, that made me sort of an albatross because a lot of them right. continued in education. And right. when I was teaching them, say, from 1984 to 2004-05, there wasn't the woke pressure on students. So I think in some cases, people said, oh, you were a student of Victor Hansen. Oh, my God, he must have been awful. And on a a few cases, I don't want to mention any incriminating names, uh, uh, they became radically woke. And that was kind of a a blow, I think, because I didn't want, I didn't care what their politics were. I really didn't. I didn't care if they're Republican, Democrat, but, but I did really inculcate the Western tradition that free speech and free discussion and we were going to judge people in the content of their character and race and ethnicity were incidental, not essential to your personas. That's my message. I told everybody. Yeah. And I, I had a daughter who was at the university school uh, 
and she would come by and she was you know, she, she was in um 14 15 16 and 17 so we would go up to school together and she'd come by my office so i would take her home to selma my, she was in the public schools there as public school but it was a charter it was the first time i ever put one of my children outside the selma schools right and she would say to me she'd kind of laugh and she said do you have any white students in your office not that she cared she just said every single student is either hispanic or mong or black or poor white she would say that she was what happened i said i don't even notice i didn't it, and it was completely and then the point of all this harangue is some of those students found that it was advantageous to re-emphasize their ethnic pedigree and in the, in the sense of victimhood right. i had been big advocates of them as far as and that kind of shocked me and so i i uh you know, I'm, I'm kind of a loner anyway, so I, I don't get involved with some of the students because my attitude was always when a student came to me and said, I want to get a Ph.D. in classics, I try to convince them not to because of the job market. But if they said history or science, I'd say, OK, or I want to go to law school or maybe I want to go to medical school. I want to get an MBA. But I and they'd always have they shoot for so-called stars. They say, I want to go to the best places. I'd always say, you know, this is Fresno State. It's going to be very hard to get out of here because people have institutional prejudices. But, but if you want to go to the Ivy League, I will do everything in my power, such as a person has power being a professor at Fresno, Cal State Fresno. But I did publish a lot, so I knew a lot of people. So I said, but, but you have to do what I suggest you do because I'm not going to write a recommendation for somebody that's going to fail. So RBA is equivalent to our MA is equivalent to their BA. So if you go to Brown or Stanford or Williams and you get a BA, for me to get a competitive student, I needed six years within a master's degree. I said, you're going to have to be, find a way to support. None of these kids had any money, period. So they were working 20, 30 hours a week. I said, it's going to be almost impossible, but I will support you anything you want to do. I will teach you how to write. I will teach you how to write in Latin. I will teach you how to write in Greek. I will teach you whatever you need to do. And I will give you independent. I think I, one semester I had nine independent studies and five courses. However, and I said, if you need to use my pickup, you can use it to move into your apartment. If you need a loan, I had a student who came in once and said, I don't have any shoes. I said, okay, go here's some money. That was a kind of full service department. And Bruce Thornton did the same thing. But we were friends Thanks. with the students. We were the friends. We, you know, I dressed, I didn't, I looked back and I, my daughter said to me, she came in one day and she was, you're a slob, dad. Come on. You got <laughs> jeans and t-shirt. You can't shoot up your, and I said, okay, Susanna, I'll, I'll do it. So I started to, you know, I have one yeah. last funny story. I was farming. I had no clothes when I started and I had no money. So my dad, <laughs> he had lived through the, I think I told you this. The love boat generation. Remember the polyester stuff, the bell bottom sure, stuff? The leisure suit. Yes. So one <laughs> day he said, Well, you're going up there and you need some clothes. Oh my said, gosh. Yeah. And I said, uh, my wife will go to Costco or whatever. And you know, no, no, I got a whole I got a whole closet full of them. I don't wear them. So he dumped them there. Uh, like you know, a powder blue. Uh, so I, I first went up there. Yeah, it was like a <laughs> bell-bottom polyester. <laughs> and then I went oh. up there. And the guy who became my best friend was a brilliant scholar, Bruce Thornton. 
I've had I've been very lucky in this life to have co-authored some edited books with two brilliant people, Bruce Thornton, who's a columnist, and John Heath, who had probably the best sense of humor of anybody I've ever met, and he was a master of prose styles. I just those two guys made life worth living when you worked with them. But I hadn't I didn't know him, Bruce, at the time, so I walked up, and he he was kind of. A, in your face. So he saw me and he said, who are you? And I said, I'm the new Latin teacher. And he said, well, I'm in English, but the love boat's that way. So. Uh, 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 oh, I hope there's that, a that photo of this floating around somewhere. I'd love to see. It. Hey, I Vicky. look like a complete fool. I really did. I mean, oh. everything went wrong when you get, when you're farming for five years and you're you don't cut your hair and you wear a beard and you're in the middle of nowhere and you're kind of pissed off at the world. I guess you would. And you have kids yeah. and you don't have money and you do stupid things. And like I would, I always had a shotgun in the back of my truck because mm -hmm. I, you know, you drive out and you're checking the water at night and you see right. a coyote or something, you know, or a stranger. And I just forgot about it. And I would drive in. I never thought of it. And one day I parked a little bit over the, the white line and the faculty and the, campus police came to give me a ticket and he looked in and he saw a gun, which is against the law, you know, on a CFU yeah. campus. And unfortunately right. it was loaded. And he said, who are you? You're not to be in the faculty park. And I said, I'm a faculty member. So I showed him my ID. He says, that gun loaded? And I said, it sure is. And he said, you know, that's a serious crime. And I said, I'm a farmer. I, I'm sorry. I'm not, it's, a, it's an 1898 Winchester 12 gauge pump. It's not, you know, it's, doesn't always shoot. So he he was very kind and I became a good friend. He would. Yeah. Wow. But it was stupid things like that. But it took me two years to acculturate. Well, I think I you've, make world again. you've uh, more than acculturated. Hey, Victor, quick, quick thing. As we end here today, I, uh, you mentioned uh, Selma, the Selma school system. Yes. And I, I just saw by coincidence, um, Earlier this week, uh, that Bobby Cox, the great manager yes. of the Atlanta Braves, is a, uh, a, a product. The famous, of... He's the most famous. Uh, well, one of the most famous. We also had a uh, Joe Barry was one of the few people who struck it rich in the Klondike during the Alaskan Gold Rush. He was a very well-known Selman. Then we had also Brother Antonius. Oh. Uh, I don't remember him. He was a Catholic monk that became uh, a poet, very famous, Brother Antoninus. And uh, he taught at UC Santa Cruz and then Bobby Cox. And the thing was, the whole, it's funny you said that. I didn't know you were going to bring it up. The Cox family was very well known in Selma. They owned something called Cox Pump Service. And they were the largest in, the, in our little town to service pumps. So when I was a little boy, the Cox brothers, or I think there was three of them, and, and that was Bobby Cox's father. And they would come out and service our pump. Sometimes they bring the kids. And then Melvin Cox was a year behind me, Bobby's smallest brother. And uh, I was a young kid when Bobby Cox was in high school. I think I was, I must be 10 years at least younger, maybe yeah. more. But but I was six or seven or eight. And he was always in the local Selma Enterprises, this phenomenal shortstop. I think he was. Yeah. And, he played for the Yankees for a couple of years and then on from there to uh, one of the great, great managers. So. Yeah, he was he he his family. I mean, they were all salt of the earth people that worked very hard and they had a successful business. But he did not grow up in privilege. I can tell you that. Yeah. 
Well, Victor, that's all the time we have, except I'm going to I have one very small comment from a kind soul uh, who, like many people, go to um, Apple or iTunes and leave comments and or rate the show zero to five stars. Practically everyone gives you five stars, Victor. And this is from K.L. Whitaker, and it's titled None More Interesting and a very short comment. Don't miss an episode. I garden alone no more. Isn't that nice, Victor? I'm glad you're, I, I, that's a nice comment. I'm glad that I, I really like gardening myself. And um, that's, that's, that's a good comment. Yeah. Well, you know, the, you are you are alongside people gardening, tractoring, whatever they're doing during the day. It's I had a person hey, call me yesterday. I think our, our audience is getting bigger. And the person was saying that they were on the they had somebody come over and she was saying that she uh, was talking to me and the person was said, Oh, I'm listening to the podcast. <laughs> it was, it was kind of a coincidence. And I think uh, that's what we're trying to do in the podcast is give people an alternative view of the universe because it's yeah. so hard to do. Yeah. To give, well, give, give us hope. And I mean, not just the uh, listeners myself, the more that I talk, I try to articulate things on the, work it out myself. So it's good for me to do it. Yeah, well, you're doing a pretty good job of it. Hey, Victor, thanks so much for uh, all the wisdom you shared today. And uh, thanks, folks, for listening. And we will be back soon with another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Bye-bye.